Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Over the last few weeks, we've seen some fantastic discussions about the local game and how we can all play a part to improve it in Australia. Tonight, we've got, uh, we've assembled some of the biggest legends of the game uh, to sit down and just have a chat and continue the conversation, really. And just, as I say, have more of a chat about how we can work together to make football the best it is in Australia. If you at home, please don't be afraid to get involved. Ask questions, disagree, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and we'll be attempting to answer those questions as we go along. But first, let me introduce this motley crew of people. Right, Heather Garriock, my old partner in crime. One of the best left, left foots in the game. H, how are you? Yeah, good, Ishi, how are you? Yeah, not bad, mate, not bad. Di Allegich. Only defender who can take throw-ins with a broken wrist, play football <laughs> and help us get to the final of an Asian Cup with a broken hip at the same time. Dyballs, how are you? Yeah, good, mate. Good to see all you guys. <laughs> and then the coach, Coach Samani, the king of crosswords. How are you, Tommy? I'm, I'm surprised you've actually worked out the technology to get on this. <laughs> hey, I'm a 25th century kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so from this side of the world, we've got DJ with her headphones on, DJ Ali Foreman, also bringing in the plane <laughs> all the way from Denmark. How are you going, Ali? Good to see you. I'm good, thanks. Nice to see all of you guys too. It's been a long time. It has, it has. And last yeah. and always least, last, I think she's just woken up. I've still got your pyjamas on. <laughs> can you hear the bells? Can you hear the bells ringing? No, no. Was that your alarm clock? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we got you out of bed. I'm glad we got you out of bed for it. Um, so thanks, everyone. Really good to see you. So um, this should be interesting, shouldn't it? Shivers. Right, so first up, we're going to, um, just to start things off, we'll do a nice quick uh, chat. Heather, first off, finish this sentence. Australian women's football is? At a major crossroads at the moment. Okay, why do you say that? Yeah, look, um, I think from grass, grassroots football to our development pathways and our junior national teams that haven't qualified um, since we've been in Asia, since 2006, um, through to, I guess, our darlings of the Matildas who are the golden generation now. But in saying that, uh, what about in a few years' time when they retire? Uh, look, I think strong leadership coupled with a clear and concise and consistent pathway I think it's in instrumental for women's football uh, if we want to have a chance in this country, especially for the whole of football. Lots to talk about then. Okay, die balls, you, um, finish this one off. Okay, in the last decade, Australian women's football has? Um, yeah, improved their world <coughs> ranking. And we, as Australia, we've really shown that we're, um, we're a formidable force <coughs> and just the number of registered amount of players in Australia is just, it's absolutely fantastic to see. It's been pretty exciting to see the development of the game and just the quality of, I think, the Matildas as well. But we need to talk about the production line. Ali, you've been involved in grassroots um, back in Australia and abroad for a long, long time. And we just talk about this golden generation now, but where's the next generation coming from? 
So where do you think they're going to come from? Where do you see the development pathways? Uh, I think you still have to keep looking at the grassroots football because that's like that defines football all around the world. It's a foundation of all football. Uh, grassroots football is where you'll find talented, non-talented, and you'll find every single kind of player. And I think as you want to produce uh, new Matildas and new superstars, you also have to remember that you have to produce just footballers, footballers that love the game, that just want to play, play the Sunday league, uh, go out and play three against three or five against five. A football is just, um, it's everything combined. And if you combine and do the grassroots level, and uh, you will get the superstars at the end of the day, as long as there's, you know, pathways for the elite, uh, for talent training and development. It's a tricky one, I think, because I think a lot of kids these days, when you ask them why they want to be a football, it's not for the love of the game anymore. It's because they want to be rich, famous and a celebrity. So I <laughs> yeah. think almost the attitude has changed. And just on that, Lee, so you've been part of like both of them. You've been across both of those generations, us old farts, and then seeing the new generation. Um, how do you think that development's going as well and to, to bring through the youngsters? Yeah, look, um, you know, obviously when we were playing the game, it was a lot more about playing for the jersey and um, you know, we weren't the quite talented team, but the team now we can take it to the next level because we're so, we have that potential, but it's sort of, but like we've always discussed, it's the generation that's changing and it's just trying to get back that culture of, you know, going outside and playing the game a bit more, like having that old school, like when I was younger, you know, I didn't play on the PlayStation because it wasn't any, but I went out and played with the neighbourhood. So I interacted with, the, the local neighbourhood and the, uh, and, the, and the community. That's a little bit more things that we need to do and put it into the, young, um, the younger generation because they want what you just said, the money, the status and all that stuff. But forgetting to learn about why they want to play is what can they get from the game, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think also it's changed a little bit, hasn't it? Because I guess, uh, and it's just a generational thing as well, I think. People aren't necessarily, if you're a footballer, you're not necessarily a fan of football. And I think... I don't know whether everyone feels like that's changed a little bit. Tommy, I mean, you're um, about 100 years old now, so you've kind of seen it since the turn of time. I'm not 100 years old, but you guys have probably made me feel 100 years old. Over the years. Come on, you loved us. You loved us. You couldn't get enough of us. Um, but, yeah, what, from, your, from your point of view, I mean, how do you think the talent ID is going? Yeah. And, and you're from coaching the national team, and you've coached three different national teams now, so... Yeah. Um, I think I think it's 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 different. I think the games is now reached the stage of professionalism, so that changes some of the dynamics around it. Just to take up Lisa's point, I think you've underestimated Lisa, the team, the players that that are that are here. Yeah, Lisa. Played. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Oh, sorry, I was going to pick up on that. By the way, you know what you mean. I want know what you mean. You said it's a talented <laughs> team now. You you were part of a team that that won an Asian Cup, got to an Asian Cup final and got to two quarterfinals of the World Cup. So don't underestimate the, the team that, that you got. Ali, you were a little bit before that, obviously, at the start of it. But the, yeah. the other four uh, here is that the, um, the achievements that you got were, were pretty significant. The only difference is that the game didn't have the profile that it, it's quite got now that it's had probably for the last three or four years. And that's, that's the difference. Can you four bring... were rubbish, right enough, but the rest of the team are pretty good. <laughs> I know, because we've been having a bit of banter on our little um, Facebook group as well about um, uh, Heather and my introduction to Alison Foreman when we first got into the Aussie team, which is basically 
constant supply of two footers and making sure <laughs> and wiping away tears and making sure that you just get up and like limp off. <laughs> Welcome to the house. Yeah. Yeah, I remember very, very vividly uh, my very first camp down at the AIS and I remember receiving a ball and wanting to take one touch, shimmy left and go to go right. And as I went to go right, I had two foot for, uh, two footer from, from Ali. And she goes, <laughs> welcome to the national team set up, hate. <laughs> so that was my welcome in. But if we talk about the generational differences, I think that's that. And if I look at everybody on the call tonight, um, even players that uh, I've played with all, all the, the, the career that, that, that we've all had, it's more about a respect thing. And you always respect your elders and you always respect where you've come from and someone like Ali who captained the team uh, for many years when we played under. Um, I think the, the most important thing was about that hierarchy and being able to win the respect when you are a youngster. I don't see that um, these days. I think there's, there's an accountability, um, a lack of accountability um, from the hierarchy or from the leadership groups or, or the senior players, as you'd say. Because um, I know for me, Ali, if you or Cheryl Salisbury, even you, Dizey, um, God, I still do it to this day. You ask me to do anything and there's a total respect thing there. So it's, um, yeah, it's changed dramatically and it's changed in life. I've got young kids as well. Um, but from a production line point of view, uh, I think we need to really go back to the grassroots, what Ali said at the start, which is fundamental. And it's for these young girls and boys to fall in love with the game of football. And in Australia, it's different in Scandinavia, it's different in, in England and Italy you grow up with this culture where it's in your blood. You follow mm. uh, mum and dad and grandpa to, and grandma to, to the local game. But in Australia, I think we're just, we're just too focused at the moment on, you know, can, can my eight-year-old get into the SAP team um, in, in the development elite program? Allow the kids to fall in love with the game, feel a passion for the game like we, we do and have done all these years. Yeah, well, like I had to get absolute lumps kicked out of me in the backyard by my brother. But, um, <laughs> I've still got the bridges from it. Di, you, you've, you've been across the coaching thing. How, how do you think, like, where are the gaps? How, uh, why, why are we talking about this? Why do we think it's uh, an issue that we need to discuss? Yeah, like it's interesting because I feel like I've sort of become more involved in the community side of the game because um, it's sort of becoming more increasingly more frustrating when we just mention money and you know there's a lot of issues you know issues around um gender equality and you know which we're all fighting for but um I've never sort of liked the political side of the sport so I feel like I'm drawn more into the community side now and it's just really enjoyable it's it's, it's great to see like my daughter now um she's going to start playing mini ruse and it's just, it's just really enjoyable to see all those kids just loving the game, like, and, you know, the oranges at halftime and just all, all the really good things that, you know, the reason why we play the game. So, yeah, I just, I just feel like I'm drawn into that now. And um, as Ali was saying, like, I just, I, just, I just feel that's such a fundamental part of building the next generation. And, um, you know, that's where I see myself fitting into now. But, um, yeah, it's just instilling that that respect you know like even you go to you go to trainings now and it's it's not it's not the um the girls going to get the balls it's the coaches and it's like where is that change like you know you'd be running around getting the balls and doing everything for the coaches but it's kind of you know it's flipped on it's you know it's just flipped around now so um yeah just, so, 
it's definitely, but you, I guess we also have to appreciate and acknowledge the fact that it is, it's a different generation now, you know, it's not like, oh, in the good old days where you said walk to training in the snow with no shoes or stuff like that, you know, like <laughs> kids these days, it is, it's, it is different and, and, and their, you know, their motivation is different. And I think we have to also have that flexibility and acknowledge and to understand, okay, it's a bit trickier because it's not where we came from. And, but we can't, you can't keep harping on about what it was like. I think we also have to adapt and that's, and look for ways to actually, you know, again, like reinvigorate people's love for the game. I think that's really important. I don't know, Ali, from a, from a, like a a European perspective, Ali, like what's your experience compared to what you've seen back in Australia? Yeah, no, like I, like in our club in Fortuna in Denmark, it's, it's the same. We have like, uh, ours is club is just girls, girls and women. We don't have men at all. So, and they start like when they're four and five years old to play football. So you create, you know, it's a DNA. It's in their blood to come out, play sport, play football, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, But at the same time, we've combined the uh, elite and the amateur together. Like uh, we we believe that they should go hand in hand um, because you have to have this amount of grassroots players, uh, like a base level, to mm. get maybe one or two stars because at the end of the day, you get maybe one, two percent of football players, you know, that go to academies or whatever are going to make it like in the Premier League in England. It's just like the numbers, people don't understand. They're not going to make it. And so mm. what's so in, you have to understand what's important. It's mm. just playing the game, being a part of the game. And, and you have to make at the club level, at the school level, you have to make it available for the ones that are going to be elite or be better players give them the option to be able to you know go down that path get special training and whatever Uh, but you also have to make it available that the people that just want to play for fun you know you also get that yeah exactly i think think that exists in australia i I think that exists in australia i think you have you have got clubs you know that that are that are I don't know, flourishing is the right word, but I've got numbers and, and lots of girls playing. And, and there's a large number of girls playing the sport at that, that age group and the skill acquisition programs. I think um, when you it depends what part of the game you're talking about. If you're then talking about the elite part of the game, that's when you need to have the, if you like, a, a, a different pathway. So when we're talking about the Matildas, we're talking about the elite pathway. We're not talking about the, the community provides the base, but then the elite pathway is the one that provides the players for the Matildas. So if you're talking about the pathways, what's probably happened here has been a breakdown of pathways that have then limited the amount of elite development that's actually happened or splintered it or put it back in the hands of clubs. And, um, and in a place like Australia, I think you need a, you need to have those elite pathways that are a little bit separate to clubs as well as having the clubs. And that's one of the reasons that I think there's a, there's been a little bit of a breakdown in the system. Yeah. And I, I agree. Yeah. Sorry, oh, sorry, Tommy. I, I, I agree with you. Sorry. Sorry, Lise. Um, I don't like to interrupt you. Um, but <laughs> in, in terms of elite, um, you know, uh, with elite, why, why are our elite, our elite players that are just before junior Matildas or young Matildas paying thousands of dollars to pay, play um, at the elite level. We never got charged at, at, at an elite level, especially um, when we're in our, our state federations or our institute programs. And I think that's wrong. Um, we shouldn't be paying, or those players shouldn't be paying 
Are you talking about are you talking about SAP programs, H or what? No, no, elite, which is more um, 16, 15, 16 plus. Remember with the institute programs we used to be part of, um, but unfortunately in 2012, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, they decided to go against that. But you shouldn't, or let's say Canberra, um, the elite girls are paying two, two and a half thousand dollars a year to play at an elite level. That's that in my what, mind. For registration fees? Yeah, registration fees, yeah. What, to play for Canberra United? <laughs> no, to play play at the younger oh, like, level. Like at the top level. Yeah, top level institute, yeah, no, which is under 18. So we're, we're charging that amount of money. So you're only going to get the rich rich parents that want to pay and the other kids, which is majority of the Matildas that have debuted in the last 30-odd years, majority of these kids, uh, 70% of Matildas come from regional areas. So, um, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're not doing it the right way from a money point of view as well. Sorry, Lise. Mm. No, no, that's good. Uh, I didn't even know about all this stuff, so it's good that you... No, because it actually makes me feel a little bit sad, you know what I mean? Because I came up from a, an environment when I never had anything and to still feel like, you know, 20 years down the track, it's still a little bit similar. It's It's just a little bit upsetting, that's all. Yeah. All right, so we'll move on to the next topic. Um, just a reminder, anyone at home, please like throw in any questions or anything or comments and stuff like that. Um, we got a question from Twitter from Matt Bradley. What to do with the W the W League season? What to do? I this is it's a tough one with this one because I think I played in what the first two seasons of the W League and I don't think it's changed since then. What's that? Nine, <laughs> ten years ago. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, but there's, there's, I just think there's been no progression with it. What, what do we do? Because, because at the moment we're going to keep losing players who are going to come over to Europe. Because why wouldn't they? The, the setup's better. The league's longer. They've got more opportunity. The pay's a lot better. Um, I don't know who wants to kick that off. Tommy, what do you think? What do they well, do I well? Think, in I think, I think, I think it's a pretty tenuous position at the moment because of this, this virus. But I think there were. Lost, I think I agree with you. It's not as advanced as it should have been. And there were lost opportunities, particularly in the early years, to get things more established and things put in place. There has been some improvements. I think the relationship with the A-League clubs now are much better. The acceptance of um, the women's team within the structure of the A-League clubs in football is much better. Back in the day when we started the league, it was rather frustrating at times with the... Uh, when we had a great opportunity to really establish a sport, because it was really probably about, apart from basketball, the first women's national league in any, any sport and the biggest sport in Australia. And we lost opportunities in those, those earlier seasons. Um, and, and it's why really... Did we, why did we lose them though, Tommy? Why because did, why our, because our sport is wonderful at not promoting our sport. You know, look at Aussie rules at the minute and they've got an Aussie rules competition, women's competition. Yeah. Wait, I don't mean it's rubbish, but it's not the best. It's not <laughs> secondary athletes playing a sport they've never played before. And two two days ago, they took up half a page in the Australian in the back the back page of the Australian, and it's promoted by the Aussie rules people. Whereas yeah. when we started the W League, it was constant fights to get things done instead of an acceptance within the sport. Now that acceptance, when the Matilda started becoming the flavour of the month suddenly became a little bit more predominant. Um, but at the same time, we haven't really... They've kicked it on in some ways, 
But I think, no. Um, not enough, though. Not enough. Not, it not, not enough to what it not should enough be. For the, not enough for the development of the national team. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that this is this is this should be an elite product that is actually feeding our national team. And the fact that a lot of the players, uh, yes, it worked out well because they could go to the US and play both um, both seasons. But actually, you don't see any other players really doing that. You don't see European players going to play another league. And actually, I think that's detrimental to our national team because these girls are playing all year round without a break. When they were bouncing back from the USA, back to Australia, back to the USA, back to Australia, internationals, it's really, it's it's difficult for them. It is, but I think that's when we had chance. I think it's much more difficult now to make progressions with the W League because now that Europe has actually awoken in women's football, we're never going to be able to compete with that. That no. That's a reality. And yeah. now that America now has to start to then try and compete with America, then that's going to be even more complicated for the W League. So the W League is actually, in the, as I say, in a, in a fairly tenuous position, I think, at the moment as to what it's got to look like or what it's got to be about. Yeah. Well, that's a question. Okay, Di, so I'll ask you this question. Do we, do we do something really radical and do we make it more of a development league? And do we encourage our players to now go and um, seek out international opportunities to play overseas? Because that's going to be better for our national team. Is it... Or do we need to keep trying to... Because I, I just don't think a 10-week season is an elite competition that is feeding our national team and doing it justice. No, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? And I feel like we really have to put the resources into this W League. Like, you know, like, Heather, I wanted to ask you about this. You've got access to these players, what, three months of the year? Like, it's just not good enough. Like, if we really think that we can compete on the world stage, having a look at all of these other leagues around the world emerging... Like, we have to do something about it and we have to do something about it now. Like, Heather, as a coach, like, you, you need access to these players like 10 months of the year. Like, no other league in the world is letting their players have a, you know, a two-month, was it two-month preseason before you... before you the play. W League? Yeah, with the W League. Like, two months. Like, less. less. It's, it's, it's four, weeks. four weeks. How, how is four a coach, weeks. Can, you, weeks. can you create a culture there? Can you create a winning culture, um, you know, to go on and play in... in the national team, like it just needs to be a longer season and we, we need to have more more teams as well so we can have more more women playing in that top level and so we can feed into the Matildas, into the Emerging Matildas programs. So we just, it has to be done now. We have to do it. Yeah. The yeah. problem is, and the problem is always going to be with that league is like it's not the resources into it. It's yeah. also the expenses of travel. Yeah. It's as simple as yeah. that. Like we're, as a country, it's bloody huge. So... Yeah. That already is mostly a budget. You know, remember remember the days when we had to fly to Perth, play at midday in 40-degree heat, and then try and fly back because you didn't want to stay overnight and stuff like we, that, you know. We still do that at times. Yeah, yeah. And you, and, but you compromise the quality of the competition. But, you know. The, the quality well, of competition. We can't, we can't get away from that and we need to find solutions to it because that we have to be realistic. That's a huge cost to the W League. Yeah. Also, Aishi, this is a question. We have uh, our future Matildas, your young Matildas, and all these programs. How many of these players actually play W League? These are development paths for those girls to play in W League, but I don't see a lot of them playing in, in, in their club teams, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, so mate, you know what I mean? So, why yeah. do we have these pathways for the Matildas when the W League is for? The young Matildas, these pathways are for them to build and build all this stuff for them to be in the Matildas, but they're not even actually playing. So the what do things, we actually... 
Okay, well, tell me, and then I've got a solution. Two things for a coach. (laughs) Two things for a coach when you're an international coach. When you're looking at players, you're looking at playing minutes, okay? So how much have you played over the season? And if you play W League, 12 games of the year, then you go away and play 20 games of the NPL League, um, whether it be in any state um, all around the country, then the intensity is not good enough. The second thing is, is you've got these young players that aren't getting minutes. So the minutes being played and the actual amount of games that are being played, it's just not good enough. You go to, you go to the WSL, which is in England, they're playing 30, 40 games a season. So in my opinion, we've got two options. We need to, first, first, we need to decide exactly what Tommy said. What do we want to be? Now, let's face it, majority of our Matildas are going to go to yeah, Europe, right, exactly. South America, whatever it is. So let's be a development league. If we want to be yeah, a development perfect. league, yeah, then that's, two that's things. We either stay in the summer and go 16 rounds, go two, four rounds, or let's go to the winter and utilise the NPL as an as a under-23 league or a development league under the W League and their feeder programs to our W League teams. And that way yeah. we're getting the luxury of the international windows. The international windows we can, we can block off. There's not too many international windows in, in the winter because we're aligning with all the all the other clubs all around the world. And then what we get is players that are playing all year round. Then let's introduce an FFA Cup for women. So there's so many different options. But at the moment, like you said, Ish, it's money, it's travel, it's cost. But this this league is fundamental, fundamental for our partners. Yeah, there's also, I was, sorry, but I also wonder, like, you know, um, players that can't exactly get to the Matildas, but if they're in the right environment, could they potentially, like... You know, Angie Beard for one, um, Ella Mastrotonia, like they you can throw them in the mixer, they they could give something. But how do we keep them training five five times a week um in a in a professional in, in a professional environment? Like when all players in the Matildas that can't get clubs overseas and they have to stay in Australia. Like those are the things I sort of look at and think, how do we fix those things? We've because, been discussing this for twelve years now though. Like Yeah, but something has to change years. now. I know we, we have to take action, but we've been talking about this for a long, long time. There, there's that there's that gap. There's you know the Matildas, and then there's what do the players do that can't quite make the Matildas? We we need to have more of those girls playing in a higher level competition. And like H, I think that's a great idea. Maybe we bring it back down to to a program that we're running over the winter, and we're playing the MPL, and we're utilising that already that established league, so we can then feed players through, and they're playing overseas. They're getting their matches overseas. I think that's a great idea. Um, we've just got a question in from um, from Twitter um, from Giovanni. He's saying the Euro leagues are now too far ahead of the W League. Um, what do you guys think of that? Do you think you know too far gone? Uh, we had our opportunity, like Tommy said. No, I, I think, and I'll throw this one to Ali. Like Ali, you've got, but mm. we also have to like take a step back and realize that historically we're still playing catch up. Like we're yeah. not, we're not Euro. And Ali, you could talk to this because you've been over in Scandinavia for a long, long time and it's been so much more progressed over there. Yeah, but I think uh, like our club is, or De- football in Denmark is facing the same uh, situation at the moment, you know, because Denmark has always, they've always been at the World Cup, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden they just sunk down. And it was because they didn't promote the, the women's league in the country. They didn't, you know, invest in it. And I think in Australia... What what I, I can't really speak about the league that well because I don't know all the small details and stuff like that. But I think they just need you'd need to make a clear strategy for the growth and the standard of the professionalism of the players and the clubs and the league. And then you just need to invest in it. 
like if you invest in it, I know it costs money to fly over there, fly over there, whatever. Um, but if you invest in the game and you invest in, in you know, the tournament, you, you will come out a better tournament. Like it'll be five, six years, you'll be producing fantastic players. The and you'll have a league. We can we can all say invest, but where's that where's that investment got, coming from? That's the big yeah, question that's because that's a, this isn't just a problem for women's football in Australia. This is a problem for men's and women's football. So I think that's where it's very easy to say that stuff. But where is it coming from? Like where is yeah. the money coming from? And I'm not sure anyone has that answer yet. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but it, it it's, it's it's a commercial side of the game, you yeah. know, and FIFA's putting a lot more money into the game as well, which goes into the associations, you know, so the uh, football association in Australia should be interested in filtering that money out to the league, you know. Um, but I, I just think it's an it's a competition that sh you should, you know, put money in and you should have the league. But they I, think, I think clubs will say that they are putting money in. Uh, they are, yeah. There's not a bottomless pit of money. And uh, the no. money's coming in, you know, when the league started, the money came from different sources. It came from um, the institute programs, which no longer exist. It came to a degree from state federations. And then it came from a, to a degree from the A-League clubs. Now it's kind of handed over to the A-League clubs, who in themselves, you know, are, are struggling, a lot of them, to survive and, and do, you know, keep the A-League afloat. So so the, the, it's always a challenge and, and even more so given the, the geography and the distance in Australia. So don't have an answer. I've got yeah, <laughs> those it. issues. That's that, the thing. We could all, we could all keep issue. talking about it. We could all keep talking about it. I think we know the issues and I think everyone's pretty aware of the issues, but it's, um, it's a solution. Just, That's a tricky thing, isn't it? Just another question. Um, Andrew asks, are we using a national league as a metric of success? Maybe we shouldn't be. Well, I think that's a great question, Andrew, and I'm, I'm going to give you uh, some stats. And so in the last eight years... Have you done your <laughs> research, Heather? She's you done research. I never attended school, but I love, I, love, I love football. Here's, um, here's some statistics I prepared earlier. <laughs> but, but this is really important. Let's talk about metrics and, and success. We, we measure success by who debuts for the national team. And let's face it, the last person to debut on a regular basis um, was Ellie Carpenter, who is a current member of the team that's on uh, regular. And the person before that that's a regular team member uh, for the Matildas is Chloe Legazzo. So we're talking back in the last seven or eight years, we've only had two regular players that have debuted. Yes, we've had about 19, 20 debut in the last eight or nine years. But in Tommy's era, when he coached for, for the eight years, there was about 60 players that debuted. So what are we doing wrong? Like to keep happy. I just kept them happy. You can question, question the coaching. Was that why I was number 26? Yeah, yeah sorry. That's why you were lucky to get a run. But what I'm saying is, is there was a core group of players, which is Sam Kerr's era, um, Emily Van Egmont, KK, to make it. So those eight or nine players that, um, are all born around the 90s, early 90s, 93, 94, 95. Other than that, we don't have we don't have anyone coming through. They've maybe debuted and played uh, three or four games for the Matildas, but terms. over ten. But over H, 10 games, other, only two, two. Yeah, but games. can I ask you, H, like, are the players out there? Like, do you think there are like top quality players out there that just aren't getting but seen or don't have the opportunity? That's a really good question. Is that what you say? No, well, I just don't think um, we've had the intensity in the infrastructure within um, Australia like we used to, like we used to have mm -hmm. the Institute 
um, programs, which I used to train with, with Matildas like Julie Murray and Katrina Boyd and um, at New South Wales. And now these players are getting put into programs with uh, a lack of intensity. Current Matildas can't, can't um, train within institute programs because they, the, the quality's not there. They, they need to go and find different, different other places. So it's, it's, I think we need to bring back, bring back um, elite programs uh, like we had it when, guys, we used to train at the institute. Because you know what? A uh, majority of the players were from, uh, that have played for, for Australia are from New South Wales or northern New South Wales. So, um, oh, come on, you're just biased. That's the, I want that stuff. They're all from Queensland. That's a bias. Northern. <laughs> I'm just trying to work out how you managed to get Julie Murray training. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, going back on to, onto why we aren't bleeding more young players into the team, but I think we've got this nucleus now, and I think it's a good thing. I think we've got a core of the team that it's harder mm-hmm. to break into that team, and that's yeah. a positive. Like, so, you, what you about in four years? We don't have players coming no. through. There's no one knocking on the door. There's no but depth within the Matildas. We're looking at some of these core players like Van Ekman, like she's 25, 26, so she's mm-hmm. still got yeah. a, a good four or five years ahead of her. Like, uh, And a lot of the players are that age. So I think that's sometimes it's a very positive thing that we can't yeah. bring these young players in. It's great and all, and I, and I agree, but you know what makes players even better? Competition. So if I had a, a young player coming through, I'm not complacent. I'm going to work even harder because, you know, it's the whole, and that's what we talk about the US, I personally think. The reason why they're so successful, because you can take Alex Morgan out and Kristen Press can come in and do exactly the same job. You know what I mean? So I think we need a little bit of comp- competition and a little bit a little bit more challenge because that sort of drives the culture and drives a player to, to take it to the next level. And I think that's because I did a bit of research myself, uh, Heather, just, you know, so you weren't alone. Um, oh, you're joking. Yeah. No, <laughs> what is, sorry, I mean, what is going on between the Nats and the Crossroads? I think that is one of the, 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 the points of the, the, where there hasn't been an, an awful lot of new players come into the team, is that when you're back to about 2012, there's about 16 to 18 players who were under the age of 23 who were area coming into the national team and and a lot of them under the age of 21 or established in the national team at that time. So, you know, they're only now becoming what you would just, you would consider to be really, you know, experienced and, and um, solid international players. And uh, in that way, and it, that's kind of stopped the pipeline to, to a degree because you had a really big, in, huge influx. In fact, Lisa's probably the only player left from the last, group if you like still in there and um and that makes it a little bit tougher for younger players then to to then come in the team because you can only bring so many in this is um a bit um off topic but just out of it what defines a golden generation because i know we're talking about the, the, the players the players that we've got now i think are fantastic but who who just like I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing that they are the golden generation, but what? Who's who decides what's a golden generation and what's not? Because they we haven't won anything. Is and where's that generation start and end? I don't know. Apart from the Asia Cup in 2010, is that is that what we're basing it off? I don't even know what the answer is to that. Tommy, I'm, Tommy, you answer this. <laughs> no, you answer. Where this. am I going with this? Um, <laughs> I I don't know. Question. I, it's a great question. Yeah. I just, I mean, I think probably what's happened now, and again, because the game's changed, is that we, we have players that are now playing 
in a lot of the top leagues in the world and um, and getting established in, in those leagues. So so getting that sort of, if you like, worldwide credit, whereas those opportunities didn't exist for your generation because there weren't the leagues around and there weren't those opportunities. So. To be fair, though, Heather and I did play for Mount Cravat Hawks. And, um... <laughs> <laughs> Weapons all over the park. Weapons all over the park. No, but all right, just, well, let, hang on, just 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 one thing about the golden generation. I think this let's not call it the golden generation. I think um, realistically, uh, not realistically, realistically, this generation um, that we've got at the moment, and we speak about Emily and 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 KK and Meeks and Sammy and Caitlin Ford and players like that. Honestly, we should be winning medals with this group of players, given the nucleus, like you said, Di. Um, of this team and how long they've been together, how many times they've gone to a World Cup and Olympic Games. So would you call it the golden generation? Maybe the best chance for Australia to be able to produce at major tournaments. Yes, this is the group and um, yeah. definitely the We'll group. get back to that, H. We'll come back to talking about the Matildas. Um, right, yeah. Uh, we're just talking about, so I think we've done the player pathway thing. Let's move on to female coaches in the game. Opportunities, Heather, you've had experience. Di, you've done a bit of coaching in it. Um, Go on. Here's your opportunity. <laughs> Go on. Hang on a second. I'm just going to let you know. Yeah, we've probably got to wrap up, you know, within the hour. But, yeah, but I, because I think it's we just don't see enough um, female coaches in the game. Yeah, look, I, I think obviously um, everyone knows me. I, I love the game. I lead the game. I'm so passionate about it. I was, I was always going to go into coaching. Um, but for, for coaches or female coaches, um, there's no career at the end of it. So I use the analogy as... You go and do your licenses and spend thousands of dollars on your licenses, and what do you get at the end of it? Um, maybe there's one or two or three um, coaching jobs for, for women that are full-time that will actually give you a career in football. The other fundamental thing, I think, is in terms of the career pathway, um, they're in terms of going from grassroots to um, semi-elite to elite to W-league, there's no progression for, for women's coaches. And you know women's coaches are different because um, they obviously, in terms of opportunity, um, it, it's very rare and, so, you know, a lot of women are different and don't like to step out of their comfort zone. So I think there needs to be two different coach education pathways um, from a, a coaching point of view and be able to nurture and mentor and, and help along. Um, but yeah, I was the hey, only... So let's, um, let's cut, because I think that's, that's uh, like all very well and good, but you and I have had experience and your mother's Yep. Because it throws up a completely different um, set of difficulties trying to yep. manage being a mother and not having the support network or even any of the resources to actually, I've seen you coaching with Aston in a papoose on your stomach, you know, in <laughs> Canberra. Like, uh, that's obviously not an ideal situation. No. How, how, does, how does the mentality, how does the support actually change? For, because that, that's what keeps a lot of women out of the game. Yeah, there's no, there's none support, there's no support, you know. Um, yeah. let, let's so what you, from, yeah, sorry, H, yeah, there's keep no going. But I wanna, I'm keen to hear from Di as well, because I know she's been through some similar situations. Yeah, I, I remember breastfeeding 10-month-old in, in the middle of my B licence. So, you know, there's, it is a, is a hard path for women, I think, especially having young families. But I feel like they, um, like the FFA, they're trying really hard to um, to involve women. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then, you know, we've come up with a few different strategies like mentoring, um, mentoring these coaches and offering scholarships to coaches. So I feel like there's acknowledgement of, yes, we need to, get more female coaches involved and I, I think it's really we we need to really try and change the club culture change the culture of the game and, and that just takes a lot of time and I know like FFA brought out a 10-year um, women equality plan and like if we can even get to half um, you know get to half of what you know they propose and I feel like you know in 10 years time it's going to be different but you know unfortunately Heather like I can't believe you've done what you've done being a mother <laughs> like, like seriously my hat is off to you because you, you are not even one percent you're a half a percent like I, I can't do it and I've witnessed it in the flesh it's it's, it's phenomenal <laughs> it's, like, it's ridiculous Let's just, we'll get back we'll get back to H anyway but I want to hear from Ali because um you know from different regions and I'll ask you Tommy as well about what you saw in the US but Ali from a European point of view how are the pathways for female coaches uh it's 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 very good like I, I don't I think sometimes I, like I try not to take the the female hat po uh, like on some uh, so often because I think um I think there is a lot of options for women in sport and in football and, and so on but definitely there needs to be change there needs to be more women like in the whole process of football they need to be in the administration they need to be referees they need to be coaches they need to filter into the whole um, board area of clubs to make decisions because at the moment you have a lot of clubs and you have a lot of associations that are dominated by my by men uh, and obviously the, the thoughts are male thoughts they're, they're not female thoughts and women have a lot of um, you know other things that have to be taken care of family you know uh, lots and lots of things mm. so um, but, do you but I think it, it's do you feel it's quite good in in Europe do you feel that there's more opportunity I know you've been away from Australia for a while but I'm so, yeah yeah do you think it's it's more acceptable as I think it's more easier. acceptable yeah, definitely. But the, the, it needs to be improved, definitely. But, you, you know, there's a lot of top high class level female coaches in England, uh, Germany, uh, France, lots of places around the world now. So do you think it also is because they um, they actually and I do know this in Europe and a lot in uh, Germany, they actually, you know, their development coaches are the ones that are paid really well because they understand yep. that they're actually the critical they're the critical people in the development of future international players where I think we have got it a little bit backwards in Australia and mm. maybe it's a funding pool, but you know, if you're thinking we're trying to develop these players, all our best coaches and all our resources should be going into getting fantastic development coaches for our, for our younger players. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think, I think also, you know, female coaches for female teams, I'm not saying it has to be, but obviously, like a female coach, is it has a different way, has a different mentality, understands like other women, 
um, I think there's a lot of benefits <laughs> to Easy. be I mean, seen. With... Tommy was basically a woman with a moustache anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a question from Christopher. Yes. Yes, Heather, you can do yes. This is for Lisa. <laughs> this is for you, please, okay? Um, you did your B licence. How did you find the course? Um, what, what did it teach you? And did it happen in the real world, um, what they taught you? From a yeah, uh, yeah. Chloe and I did our B, uh, started our B licence um, about a year ago. Um, and it's funny that you brought that up because what I like to see a little bit more is maybe not, why not having some female instructors as well coming in and taking the courses as well. No, no, because for some females, it might make them feel a little bit comfortable going in there knowing that there's a, a female that's in charge as well, if that makes sense. But I actually enjoyed it and tell Chris I said, yes, it was great. And I learned a lot from um, not the, foot, the the coaching side of things, but it's different to a player mentality. So that was kind of hard for me. Have you done your assessment? Uh, Lisa, <laughs> <Vanilla talking. laughs> no, I haven't, Heather. So, Tommy, I just want to ask you your okay. experience in the US okay. uh, compared to where, like Australia and everywhere else in the world that you've been. Well, I think uh, in a co women's coaching sense, we're talking about, or yeah, yeah, yeah. still, yeah. I, I mean, I think well, th there's a few things. I've got a few opinions on on the women's and and coaching thing. Firstly, is it? Uh, I think it is tougher for women. Um, you know, like you say, Di and and, and Heather both have children. Re the rea reality is that often that the mother is the person that looks after the children, um, which is just part of life. But not saying that that should be the case or whatever, but. Um, you know, in competitive coaching, it's a kind of harsh, unforgiving, unforgiving world. I've, I had used to have this debate when I was at the Federation, is that I thought we approached it in the wrong way. What we tended to do back in the days when I had the Matildas was we say, we need to have coaches with the national teams and things. What we need to do with females is we need to have, it's a, like a pyramid. You need to get the foundation right first. And we kind of started at the top rather than starting at the bottom. And you've got to start getting a mass of coaches. So you've got to get start having women coach at all sorts of levels in all sorts of areas. And then the better ones then start progressing to the, to the, you know, to the top. And, and so you've got to approach it a little bit that way. In amongst that, you've got to make concessions for, for women to give them opportunities to get on courses, to improve and to get experience at the same time. So there's got to be that. But then there's also got to be, and I think Ali alluded to it, it's not just about coaching. Female, oh, sorry, and if I go back to Australia, your generation here is the first really professional generation. So you're the, the first group that, in a sense, have been footballers. So previous to that, and Ali, you know, Ali's a, an, anomaly, an anomaly because she's been a professional. But you were brought up initially at a time, Ali, when everybody had jobs, when the girls used to pay to play for the national mm. team at the start. Yeah. Um, mm. So they then went on to the jobs. So your group, Heather, Di, uh, uh, Ish, you're the first kind of professional group, if you like, who are then starting to look for jobs in the game. So then it takes a little bit of time to get that yeah. established. But if you look, you know, four out of the five people that are on calls here are all involved in the game full-time professionally. Um, you've got Amy Duggan on the board. There's uh, Katie Gill, a high level at the PFA. You've got Sarah Walsh, high level at the FFA. And, and they're great examples of coming from that, your generation. So I, I think that 
there is there, there is progress we need to mm. stay, keep chipping away and making it better and and making sure that we do the right things to encourage females to get into the game the reality is once you're in it the game's unforgiving and whether you're a man or once you're in it you'll want to get back out of it <laughs> <laughs> once you're in it you'll realize how stressful it is and you'll want to get five times like it just get the tv sort of it tv is great yeah. great I part, the u.s sorry u.s is different it's a different world they think yeah. about sport differently think about football yeah. talk about it differently um the size of the game's different the number of um pathways are different you can make a really it's a good paid model out. though isn't it tommy like at the at the junior it's level it's a paid model. like it's, yeah. it's not overrun by u.s soccer it's basically little clubs yeah. and you pay to play for they're like businesses they're little exactly. businesses around and so obviously that generates income where they can pay coaches whether they're good bad or indifferent so yeah exactly. I, I agree it is quite it's um and you've does anyone else want to add system. anything on that what's that tommy massive college system as well yeah exactly yeah, yeah exactly oh. Um, does anyone else have anything else to add on that before we move on? Oh, good. Good to see you all quiet. And <laughs> That's the first time um, so we've been yeah, quiet. Yeah, no, exactly. First time they've all been compliant. What's this? Yeah. Um, so we're going to move on to the Matildas. Um, most loved sporting team now. Most successful Australian sporting team. You touched on it before, Heather, that this is the golden generation and we may, we probably should be achieving a lot more. Um, I don't know. Let's start with one of the current Matildas, Lisa. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, we've pretty much touched up a lot about what we need to do. Um, I think, you know, moving forward now, I think we need to have, you know, people, I, I prefer, you know, obviously football ex-players getting involved now a little bit more and sort of bringing this new culture in. We need to start from the young age, like I said to you, Heather, pretty much last week um we need to start from the grassroots all the way up and you know having a, a coach that can come in now and and start it overseas the w league overseas the grassroots and, and is engaging with all the coaches around and i think mpl is another one that we need to um engage with i think we have to make it a bit more like a like a not a community but everyone has a, an input and a get together because for so for so long it's been so much different directions and where, where we want to go so that's what I think at the moment, but you know, I'll I want to hear what um, the rest of you guys want to uh, say because I'm I'm curious to see what, what what needs to be done from someone else. I think we're that far away though. I think you know we've got this quality group of players, and of course we're probably going to be hypercritical because we our expectation is that they're a fantastic group of players and there's a lot of depth there. So of course, but you know, we've still got to be a bit realistic. I think you know when we actually. If we break it down and and the World Cup, I think really highlighted it. There's definitely still a gap between us and the best teams, and that's so, not just you know we've got some fantastic players, but I think being at the World Cup still highlighted that technically and probably our tactical awareness isn't quite up to a top five standard, and that, and we need to improve that, and we need to be realistic about it. We've got just, all the tools, we've got the players, but we just we also need a bit of a reality check to go. Well, hang on, we're not there yet. Where we're still, we think we might be, and we can compete with these teams. But you know, technically, I think we're still a little bit behind. Um, Alex has uh, written in a question: uh, With a great squad, can the France campaign be described as anything other than a disaster? 
think that's a bit harsh. That that's harsh. <laughs> 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 Holy mackerel. Alex, Alex. <laughs> with, with, with a great squad, can the France campaign be described as anything other than a disaster? No, you, think, you have to remember that there was like more teams at the World Cup, the last World Cup. You have to always take that with it. <laughs> right, go on, Di. Di, what do you think? Come on, Di. I can, I can see you waiting to jump in. Go on, Di. <laughs> last World Cup, the standard of play was absolutely phenomenal. Like it, yeah. it, it took my breath away. To be honest, like I, I just, it was just amazing. And yeah, like we're in a real transitional phase with the Matildas. Like we've come from being the underdogs and now we, we you know, we were fifth in the world. I think we've slipped back to seventh. So we're in this transition phase of, yeah, we, we need to say that we're, you know, like we're capable of winning the World Cup. And we still, yeah, like you said, Ish, we're still not quite there. But we have just got so many weapons now. And I, I feel like we're not too far off. But like to say that, to say the World Cup campaign was a disaster, like, it that's certainly that's wasn't a disaster, ridiculous. <laughs> but I don't think we're in a transitional phase. We've had uh, three, uh, not, like I said, nine out of the squad that have been to three World Cups, two Olympic Games, so it's definitely not a transitional phase. I meant in, as in, in the psychology of us trying to transition from actually becoming winners yeah. at the World Cup level. Like we're Gross. winning tournaments now, like, you know, the Asia Cup, but we need to be more consistent with our, our thoughts of we can actually win you know, the World Cup, the Olympics. The last time we won an Asia Cup was in 2010. Mm. Yeah, so. I was there. That was great. Tournament. Yeah. How much fun was uh, that, Di? Yeah, hey? yeah that, was, that was brilliant. You're the assistant coach, Dizzy. <laughs> Female assistant. Um, Lisa, this one's for you. Uh, Peter's written in, changing a coach on the eve of a major tournament doesn't help you win anything. What do you ah. Oh, yes, there was always going to be that one, wasn't <laughs> there? Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, look, yes, yes and yes and no. Um, Obviously, you know, um, you know, obviously, you know, a World Cup takes four years purely because you need to build a team and prepare for something big like that. And also, you know, you also need a coach that actually knows has been part of the women's system as well to sort of know what, what you know, what to expect at that kind of, um, not level, but like the, the differences between um, a men's game to a women's game. And I thought that sort of played a part a little bit. But yeah, it wasn't a, a great deal, but you know, it is what it is. And I personally, you know, it was probably like we say, the, the best moment at, at the time that we could have won a major a major tournament, but you know, it is what it is. I think I think when it came to this World Cup, it's the first World Cup where there's been narrow margins between teams. So when you got to the, the last 16, I think apart from one of the teams in the last 16, I think every other game was probably a goal in it either way. Um, and, and if you get the right result then and, and you could have rolled on further into the tournament. I think um, obviously the change of coach created a, a significant disruption, whether that was uh, overtly or just within, uh, you know, sort of underneath, underground kind of thing. But the, I think one of the, the issues leading into the World Cup was that the story wasn't about the World Cup. It was about yeah, exactly. the change of coach and, and things like that. And, and, and that often... Although players and people around can say, well, that didn't have an impact, it, in many ways it does because the story wasn't about the football. It was about, you know, what was happening and, and um, you know, Stadge going and, and Ante uh, coming in. And then also trying to come into a team that close to a World Cup that you're not familiar with is it, challenging, even coming into a team that you're familiar with. You know, I took the New Zealand team on 
uh, nine months, eight months before the World Cup with a lot of players that I'm really familiar with. And it's still taken me up until probably now to get a real handle on the team. So I think, you know, there was those, some of those um, issues, I think, possibly impacted uh, the results and the performances a little bit. Like you say, though, everything like would be, well, not forgotten, obviously, because of, you know, the circumstances with Stad, which were pretty poor, and we can probably all agree that. Um, but, you know, we win that first game against Italy, and it's like that, that story gets pushed aside, and then it's back focusing to the team. And I don't necessarily, I mean, being there, you can just see, and I feel like we, we do this a lot. We build up so much to this first game, this expectation, and you can see it in the players warming up. Everyone's like, so quiet, so focused, like putting so much pressure on themselves. And then it's all that nervous energy. And then I don't think we played to our potential. You know, we should have beat Italy easily. But it's like building up to this huge moment rather than just turning up to a game and it just being another game, like a lot of the other international teams do. And I think mentally we still need to mature in that way and our approach to it. I don't know what you think, Heather, or even you, Lisa. I just think we, we build up so much to these games rather than you see the US team, they just turn up and it's just another game. You know, German team, French team just turn up. It's just another game. Yeah, doesn't I, seem that it builds up so much. Well, if you and, I, and I only say that from a player's perspective. Sorry, I only say that from actually standing on the sideline. And and you know, as a player, because the game against Brazil, the girls were like joking around, looked really relaxed because the pressure was off. Because then we had to fight for our for a result against Brazil, and it was like you could just see the different the different atmosphere in the warm-up and how the, the girls were preparing for the game. I don't know whether you, sorry, I'm, I'm, Lisa, I mean, you were there. Did you get that sense, that feeling? Yeah, look, it was uh, how I was feeling and like, it was a different different energy. Like, you know, yeah, like I said, the I first- I felt that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, obviously the, the loss against Italy sort of put a little bit of pressure for us with the Brazil game and that sort yeah. of, sort of changed the mood a little bit. And then, um, yeah, so... Don't you think we've always bit... done that, though? Sorry, Ali. Sorry, yeah, I, yeah. I swear to God. Die, Heather, Ali. Don't you think we always do better when we concede a stupid goal early yes. and we have to fight yes. for it? Because yeah. if we ever go into a game where we're the favourites, we are usually honking. Like, absolutely honking. <laughs> I think, I think if we, it's if like... we're up against it, we're like, yeah, this is great. We're the underdogs. Yeah. It's it's a we we love the underdog uh, title we do and and like I I know myself like when I played it was I was just about put that jersey on I love this country I love this nation I love this game and I'm gonna kill everyone. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> that's why I'm so happy that you were on our team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no. No, but but I think that's like. Um, it's it's what it's a part of it, of being Australian. It's a part of your blood. Yeah. It's a, it's what we are it's, as a nation. And I think it's really important if you look at the culture of the team to build around that because that is what defines an Aussie. If you ask everybody around the world, they'll say an Aussie is a fighter. They're like an underdog and they never give up. That's what we're known for. So I think exactly. we should always base our team on that and yeah. the culture on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. What do you think, Doctor? Totally You're about to jump in here. Yeah, go on, H. No, yeah. I, I just think um, I think it will be a momentous occasion when we can go from the underdog mentality, which we all know that we are and we wear it on our chest, the never say die mm. Matildas, we've, we've had that for years, to a team that has this winning mentality and belief amongst the squad that mm. no matter what team we come up against, 
we are going to beat them. And it's similar to the US squad. Regardless of how good they are technically, tactically, physically, that we know that they go on the field and they truly believe collectively that they are going to win that game. And that's because they always win them. They mostly win them. And you, <laughs> but you have to, you have to, not, you have to win things to yeah. to get that. But, so that's my next point. That's my next yeah. point. Is 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 re, um, um, reacting or not reacting is recreating moments of pressure times. How many times? In the W League, do we have a pressure time, which which is it's a World Cup game. You need to score that penalty, um, Alana Kennedy or Emily Van Egmont. We don't recreate the moment very often, only at major tournaments. Where if you if you're playing in Europe, you're playing for Lyon and you're playing in the Champions League, or you're playing for Arsenal, or you're playing in the the major games, Man City, the the um, the Chelsea. They're massive games in front of massive crowds. We don't do that as Australians. And until the players can go overseas, which they're doing now, which is fabulous, yeah. recreating yeah. the moment of pressure where you know you have to perform on that world stage is most important. So I do, the, the, let's get your thoughts on that. Hang on, Lisa. Let's get yeah, Dai's thoughts on that. Look, I, I feel like we've got the players in that team who handle pressure well. I, I feel like we've got big, you know, big game players. Um, it's just a matter of, as you're saying, like Heather, like it's that consistency. It's it's like trying to, it's, it's getting that team to win consistently, win big tournaments leading up to World Cups. And, and it does take time. Like you, you don't just become a world champion overnight. Like, it, it, yeah, it's just changing that culture. It's gradually chipping away at that world rankings. And, and we are, we're slowly moving up. We're consistently, you know, semifinals at World Cups. You know, we are doing that. It's, it's just, we've got to keep chipping away at it. And as you said, Heather, going overseas, playing in these big games, um, and that's what we're doing now. So, like, I feel like, you know, our time is coming and hopefully hopefully we win this World Cup bid and hopefully in a few years' time we're in that right direction to, you know, to, to I mean, I'm not saying we're going to win the World Cup in two years' time, but, like, I feel like we're in the right direction to at least be contenders for that top three, top four sort of spot. Lise, did you want to say something? Yeah, like... Um... When we say, you know, uh, the pressure and all that stuff, there was a period that, you know, when I was in the Matildas that I felt every game we went into, I felt that we're going to win this. And the confidence and belief did kick in. And even when we went to, like, uh, when we played Japan and we lost in the uh, quarterfinals, I still felt I went in that game, we're going to win. It wasn't never a fear of playing these teams because we felt as a team we're capable of doing it. Um, and moving forward, even against Brazil when, at the Olympic Games, when we lost in penalties, even during the game, I didn't feel fearless of them. So the, the fearless and the pressure, it's, it's, it's never like gone. It's like we've always felt we can do it. It's just we've always that little, little point of a game that we just seem to lose control of, if that makes sense. Because... For many, for many years, I, and, and that's the reason why Matildas are the darlings of Australian football. The reason why people want to say is because we played some good, played some good football, and we played with confidence and flair. And that doesn't just happen, you know. That took a time, but we, we did it. So it's just trying to continue to take take that mentality and, and that belief and continue. But that that but starting from the younger age group to have that sort of arrogancy a little bit and be like, be confident and back yourself and not be fearful of who you play against or who they are. And and that's why... Yeah, but you, feel, feel, you can say that about the arrogance in that, Lisa, but we are very quick to anyone that we deem who has any shred of arrogance. 
that we just want to cut them down. And you're, you're like, I'm you, <laughs> oh, sorry, I had to interrupt you there saying that because you want to, because you're probably one of the worst culprits of it, you silly bugger. But, but if we want to, if we want to uh, like nurture a mentality of arrogance, then we have to get on board with it. And we no, have to give people the opportunity to be arrogant. There's difference arrogance. There's confidence and, and being know, but arrogant. Arrogance doesn't always need to be a negative thing. Why does it have to be negative? No, it's not, not a negative. plenty of arrogant people where I'm it's, not saying it's, that, Ish. I'm not saying that. You're putting words in my mouth. I'm trying to, yeah. All right, we're going to cut it here. We've got to yeah, cut it, it, cut it. We're going to cut it, top, time out. Um, we're going to time out. She'll, she'll be calling me after. Don't worry. We're going to straighten it. You're copping it after. No shit you are. Let's let's Teddy Teddy's made a statement. Thanks, Teddy. Mentality is our biggest weak weakness. Um, yeah. This is this is to die from Tilly. Uh, did the big game players come up short in France? Um, yeah, yeah, that that's a that's a good one. Putting me on the spot there. Um, I don't think that I don't think our big game players performed as well as they could have. And um, collectively, I don't think they did. I think there was potential there to do that. But yeah, I, I don't feel like our biggest players performed as well as they possibly could have. Uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah. I mean, there was, I still think there was kind of extenuating circumstances, a couple of players out of place, injuries, stuff like that. Talk about, Sammy still scored five goals, didn't she? You know, like, I, I think collectively, yeah, I think we had high expectations and probably underachieved. But I think our whole team are big time, big time, like, what is it big time players so it's I, I don't even th I can't even pick out like one or two I mean Caitlin had a pretty quiet tournament did she didn't she but I, I I thought Caitlin just seemed really bloody fatigued she's had like you know and I think that's probably going from season to season and stuff like that I don't know. so Ish, um anyway. I've got a I've got a curly one um oh, I like curly ones Giovanni it's to to me and you um your opinion oh, on stage sacking was it the correct decision was it handled correctly um, <laughs> correct decision I think from my um well I wasn't there but it seemed like the right decision the way it was handled was horrendous absolutely horrendous timing probably not great but um there was definitely a, some type of sense of relief that I I felt when I was in Turkey at that camp and I'm going to be honest and um you know and and that's not just from hearsay that's from people telling me so I, it definitely seemed like um the cracks were starting to appear, but it was it was horrible how it was handled. Absolutely horrible. No one should ever be treated like that. Absolutely so, terrible. And it, and it was so disrespectful to Sage. He's so done I'll, so much for the game. So I'll, I'll throw this out. So if we had our time again as a uh, – or the executives at FFA had their time again, and I'll get you to answer this, Tommy, um, five months out of the World Cup, our highest ranking, 12 months before that, fourth, we're currently ranked seventh. Um, was it the right decision, Tommy? Um, I, I don't think that. No, I, I don't think so. I think the timing of the decision was was exceptionally poor. Um, I think the reasoning for the decision was kind of muddled, uh, and um, and like Elish said, I think it was handled very poorly. Uh, it, it and and it was handled. It was a decision made without a plan in place because uh, I I think. The people that made the decision thought that they were they were going to have an influx of coaches that they could just cherry pick one from, um, which didn't turn out. Sorry, I just need to be careful. Ante is a very uh, an exceptionally good coach, by the way. So I don't mean that in relation to Ante, but I think they felt that they would be able to to do this and and move in for a coach that had 
you know, extensive world experience yeah. with uh, female teams, and, and that didn't come to pass. And um, so I think the whole the whole scenario was was done uh, very very poorly. I think okay. uh, in hindsight, rubbish, wasn't it? it was yeah, in hindsight, rubbish, really in hindsight, if if they felt there was a need for a change of coach, uh, if that's what they felt that should have been done significantly earlier than it was. Um, yeah. And the, the reasoning behind it was really very unclear. So yeah, yeah, it was it was just poor. Many in many levels, I think it was poor. So let's yeah. turn the tables. I've got another question from Sunny. What needs to happen for the Matildas to medal at the Olympic Games? How exciting is this for the Olympics to happen? <laughs> would be a start. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're trying we're trying to turn a downer into a positive. No, I know. Got to get rid of the virus. <laughs> Thanks for that, Ish. <laughs> I think like we, I just want to say like I think we have an amazing team and an amazing team with a, a huge potential um, and I think you know everything is going the right way I, I'm a, a little bit on the outside in Europe looking in um, a lot of the times but I, I think there's so many positive things and there's so many good things being done with Australian football uh, creating role models like Sam Kerr and all the other players that are going overseas and actually making it overseas being superstars is is fantastic um so so I think you know you just got to keep uh heading down the road that we are heading with a lot of changes obviously I think there need to needs to be more investment um more commitment um you know and a, and a real strategy of where we where we want to be in five ten years or whatever with with the competitions in Australia and with the national team. But I think we have a national team that is absolutely amazing today. I would give anything to, to listen, like to play again today. It would be absolutely amazing. But You're uh, not quick enough, Ali. You wouldn't be quick enough. I know. My old tricks won't ever work again. Dizzy, what do you think? What do you think the Matildas need to do to medal yeah, next year? On the same page as Ali, like, it's absolutely wonderful team. The depth, um, you know, the amount well, of the, the amount of time they've been together as players and Lisa I just love hearing like the, the confidence that the team had leading into these games throughout the game how you still had belief in yourself um, I just like to see us fine-tuning things leading into you know the uh, the Olympics like playing probably a few more games um, mm. you know if we stay injury free if we keep that core together um, mm. you know I really feel like yeah it's always been that Playing international games leading up to the Olympics, I think, will be really crucial for this um, for this group of players. Lise, what do you think? Just before we move on, yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree. Like, we're a very good team. You know, it's just um, how do I explain it? Yeah, I don't know how to word it in the way when we when we've been together for so long. So there's not many much of adjustments you need to do in terms of. Tactically wise, does that make sense? Because we're such a good team. I if that makes sense. I'm just yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. How to, it's fine tuning. Like, it's you, fine yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, there's not many. You Four don't margins, need to, isn't it? Yeah, you don't mm -hmm. need to change too much Four in our margins. team because we're such a good team. If that makes yeah. sense. Just, and I'm sure Tommy would probably say, if to win a gold yeah. medal, we need to score more goals than the opposition. That's how we win it. <laughs> just get the preparation right. Stay injury free. Yeah. And avoid New Zealand. <laughs> <At all costs. laughs> hey, so there are any more questions? Yes. Probably, um, like, look, we could waffle on all day, but we'll probably need to wrap it up pretty soon, I reckon. 
Okay, um, I think this is a. a I've got to go. I've got to get a roast in the oven. You look, and you, you've got to get your know, another next gin and tonic. That's that's a <laughs> good woman doing all the cooking. Um, Peter's written. Um, who would be the next Matilda's coach post Ante? Who should be? Sorry, who should be? Who knows? That's a tough one. I know. I that's just think, being, like Tommy said, there's not there's not this um, huge depth of coaches out there. Who and also a lot of coaches now because the um, the club system over here, you know, they're talking about possibly Casey Stoney taking over from Phil Neville. But why, I don't know, Tommy? You've happen. been a national coach. Yeah. Being a national coach is a very difficult thing because you only get the players like for a very even, short period of time. Even less. I mean, no. It's for you because you can just mm. swan around like it's your perfect job. Like you know, coffees, <laughs> chats, all the rest of the afternoon. He, he doesn't drink coffee. <laughs> tea, yeah, tea. Sorry, <laughs> but it is. It's a, it does. It's a, it's a difficult role, isn't it, Tommy? It's never easy to get the coach you want. Yeah. It really is. You know, you think there's mm. all these coaches out, and as I say, they found that when they tried to advertise the job earlier, and then um, uh, you know, they they didn't. I, I think they got. I think they misunderstood the market and how difficult it is to do that. Um, mm. It's difficult to say. I think whenever Ante leaves, and I don't know what Ante's going to do, if he's going to stay on uh, for, for a while or whatever. Um, but if it, it, it's difficult to say. You just need to put it out to market and see you know, who might come in there for the job and, and hopefully try and pick the right person. Okay, so we might... Yeah, go on. Yes, uh, and this is a big thing. It's also... It, and it, I want it to be a... Per, it doesn't matter if it's a female or a male. It has to be the perfect person. And I think... For that to happen, it has to know the Australian culture. It's got to um, have a strong personality, I think, a little bit. Um, so for me, I think, you know, it shouldn't be about women or man or woman. It should be the right person for the job that's going to come in there and embrace the Australian Australian culture and, and knows what needed from the grassroots onwards and it's going to engage with all of that stuff for us to be successful moving forward. Nice one. Okay, so just to um, wrap it up and lighten the mood a little bit, I want everyone to tell a, their favourite and very quick story about Tom Somani. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've all got one. Ali, you're going to start first. You've known him I the longest. I have so many. Oh, my God. I can't remember. There's something about Scotland, and there's probably something I shouldn't say about a trip we had to Scotland. No, nope, this <laughs> is the knows. Everyone's listening. <laughs> no, I can't tell. He probably tell, doesn't even remember. Oh, he wanted to kill me, that basically. <laughs> Sounds about right. And that's yeah. it. That's it. I'm not Tommy going there. Lisa, come on. Your favourite story about Tommy? Me? Yeah. I didn't hear you. Um, <laughs> shut up. I didn't Please hear you. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I, don't, I have many, but I just want to know why he threw me out of the team because, um, because <laughs> the, the, the kitchen lady <laughs> why I didn't like her eggs. <laughs> She cooked the wrong eggs for me, Tommy. <laughs> you didn't mean you had to throw it at her then, you know? I didn't throw nothing at the cooking lady. She just didn't cook my eggs. And you got upset with me about it. Until this day, I didn't understand why. Because <laughs> you threw the eggs at the cooking lady? I did not throw no eggs. Was that the time she, she turned the room upside down? Yeah. Go on, Daisy. What's your um, favourite Tommy? Oh, goodness. I, 2010 at the Asia Cup when we dyed your hair black. That was, <laughs> that was, that was awesome. You look ridiculous. You looked ridiculous. 
I'm hateful <laughs> children. Um, my favourite story is the 2010 Asian Cup, um, probably the highest stakes we could possibly have as a coach. You're just about, the, about to win the first silverware for Australia ever. It's the penalty shootout. It's pouring down with rain. We've gone through extra time, bodies everywhere. Everyone's injured left, right and centre. Gets to the penalty shootout. He's asking players who want, want, wants to take the penalties. He's got the list of players. And then we all come in for a huddle. And he said, guys, I need you guys to hurry up because I want to be home by the time home and away starts at 7 o'clock. <laughs> Sorry. So, hey, you know what the funny thing is? He used that joke at the 2006 Asia Cup penalties. Same joke. We won. We won. We wanted to go and see home and away. <laughs> he, he said the exact same thing in Adelaide in 2006. <laughs> <laughs> Except it was fairly fortunate. I, um, my favourite story is one of the best um, inspirational tactical speeches against China where Tommy just said, look, we're probably technically we're probably not as good. So if we just bump bump it in behind, turn them around, and then if it comes back into midfield, just whooshka, just whooshka, <laughs> just whooshka, and then we'll see how we go and get to half time. <laughs> Brilliant. And to be fair, I think we beat them. <laughs> we beat them with the old whooshka. I love it. The old whooshka. Ishi, <laughs> can I just finish off with um a final yeah, comment? Yeah, go on. Out. Um, Andrew's final comment, which is really nice and it's going to resonate with, with all of us, is um, don't lose sight that the Matildas are the dream of a lot of little girls um, a little bit more than 10 years ago, um, which I yeah. think That's is awesome. fantastic that the Matildas are inspirations for young little girls and boys um, that want to have a dream to play for, for Australia. So, and I think we can, all, we can probably all acknowledge that we're really like so proud that we've been part of the history of the Matildas. And we're so proud that, to see the development of this team and how it just keeps going from strength to strength. I think we all acknowledge that. And it's not, we don't talk about like back in the good old day because we just want to be remembered, but it's really nice to be part of something and to see such positivity around, you know, Australia's most successful and loved sporting team. I think we all love it. We love supporting the Matildas. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. amazing team. Absolutely. All and, right, uh, well, so on that lovely note, um, it was lovely seeing you all and having a chat. It's been too long, hasn't it? We really could yeah. talk a lot this all day. Um, but thanks, thanks for everyone who got involved as well. Really appreciate it. Um, and I guess, you know, hopefully when we get back to football after, after this terrible thing that's happening at the moment, that um, Australian football can continue to, to continue to improve and reach the heights that we all want it to. Well done, everybody. Well, well done on all your contributions to the, the Matildas. It's been significant. Yeah. So. Oh, all thanks, right. Tommy. And yours too, Tommy. Okay, Tommy. Yeah. Oh, this oh, is a bit of a love-in. Does everyone want to do a go? <laughs> no, no like you get stick on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. What's everyone saying? This is boring watching paint dry. If anyone watches it anyway. Um, except yeah. for friends and family. All right. Take care, everyone. We'll take chat care. To you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.